Hello? Hey, sorry to wake you. I know it's early. It's fine. What's wrong? How did you know something was wrong? Because you never call me from work, so I assumed it was something important. How did you know I was at work? Oh, wait, so you're already recording? I am. What's up? I got called out to rest easy at the crack of dawn today. Rest easy? The nursing home? They prefer to be called a convalescence facility, but yeah. Everyone certainly remembers Joseph's part-time job as a body recovery technician. He started doing this work in secret last season to avoid eviction from the bank. Well, despite Eric Quintero swinging in to rescue the building, Joseph was still left with bills to pay and now a depleted savings. So to stave off financial ruin, he'd kept his position with the mortuary service. This side gig was also how he made a horrifying discovery in season two, so I was afraid that he'd just made another. Please tell me you didn't find anyone we know. No, no, I was sent to recover the body of Mr. Oh, I shouldn't have said his name. Bleep that out for me, please. Will do. The charge nurse told us that he didn't have any family and had arranged to be cremated after his passing. So me and show up to... Ugh, could you... Bleep your co-worker's name, too? Yeah. Thanks. Okay, so me and another guy I work with were called out to rest easy to transport his body to the crematorium. We had just prepped the disaster pouch when... Hang on, Joseph. Not everyone will know what a disaster pouch is. Oh, right. It's basically a body bag. Anyway, just as we get to work, these other guys show up out of nowhere. They flash some documentation at the charge nurse, and she had to release the body to them instead. Who were these guys? One of them said they were from Rampart Mortuary Services, which I've never heard of. Rampart? Does that mean something to you? I didn't tell you, did I? The company that bought the station is called Rampart Media. Could this be... Another shell corporation of the Cabal? Seems likely, but... If it is, they're not even trying to be discreet anymore. Why would they want the man's body? Was he important or something? (sighs) That's actually why I'm calling. I think I know why, but it's not an easy or a short answer. I'm off for the rest of the day. Do you want to meet me at the bank? We have a lot to discuss. Like what, exactly? Like how this entire story fits together. This is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast. Chapter 12, The Last Book Report. I let myself into the bank, seeing the bookcase that was actually a secret door hanging open. I heard Joseph digging around in the vault and called down to him. He said he'd be right up and that I should help myself to some fresh coffee. I went to the kitchenette to do just that, then moved to await my partner in the library. I took my usual armchair, glancing across to the other. It was empty, but I couldn't help but imagine Clarence Grindle sitting there. My eyes lowered to the cushion where the third Pendergast manuscript, or rather a published copy of it, remained wedged, just where our enemy had placed it before leaving yesterday. The bank felt violated now. I hated that his brief presence had sullied a place so special to me, and certainly to Joseph. I tried not to think about it. I instead turned my attention to that old reversible chalkboard listeners will recall from season one, and it stood alongside something I hadn't seen since the maiden voyage of this podcast, that AV cart with the outmoded TV strapped to it. Both had been brought out and now faced the chairs, no doubt as part of some forthcoming presentation Joseph was preparing for me. I assumed we'd be going over the events of the next Pendergast Chronicle, this being an essential hallmark of each season, but we were to venture well beyond just that book. This is probably a good place to beg the indulgence of the listener, as Joseph begged from me during the course of this lengthy conversation. You'll see what I mean. I sipped my coffee and tried not to think about Grindle, but my eyes kept drifting to the other armchair. 
I was so entrenched in my own thoughts that I didn't acknowledge Joseph when he finally joined me in the library. Nor did I have the presence of mind to ask about the old camcorder he'd brought up with him and was now plugging into the television. Not until my partner took the seat beside me did I snap out of it. Not until the image of Joseph replaced the imagined one of Grindle. You okay, sweetheart? Much better now. Joseph felt the book in the cushion and withdrew it. He turned it over in his hands, smiling. So, what happens in this one? Like any good trilogy ender, it's an epic culmination of the other two installments. Former friends and enemies make their return, old places are revisited, questions are answered, conflicts resolved, etc. It's the perfect denouement. It's the perfect wah wah wah? Denouement, sorry. Fancy word for the final part of a story. Well, so far our third installment seems to be following this formula. I'd expect nothing less. Don't you think that's crazy though? I mean, you and I didn't go to the land of phantoms or to the elsewhere world, but those places came to us, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you're saying. The events of our podcast have directly and indirectly reflected the events of whichever book we focused on each season. And it is crazy, absolutely, but it doesn't really surprise me. You needn't look any further than to the book bearers for that. Violet in particular was the prime example of how these chronicles make you a part of their plot. You and I have described it as being pulled into the story, but really it's more like we've become the continuation of that story. Like having the baton passed to you? Joseph smiled as he handed me the book. Exactly, yes. That's in part how I learned that there will never be an end to this story. This trilogy, it had a conclusion, certainly. But while it was tying off one storyline, it was threading countless others. Still, it's boggling, no? Joseph grimaced at my word usage. I remembered that Grindle had said this very thing yesterday when reading his own words. This made me grimace as well, and I set the book aside. Sorry about that. (laughs) No worries. Well, I guess we should dig in. This will be the last book report our audience will have to sit through, so... Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. This is the last one. That's kind of a bummer. Or a relief. Didn't you say a lot of our listeners hate this part? I don't think anyone hates it. It's just a lot to take in, you know? Oh, that is certainly true. Okay, my love. Walk us through Pendergast's denouement. So... Oh, hang on. Before you start, let's quickly brush up on the other two books, yeah? The first was The Detective's Testimony, which was written in 1899. The second book was The Soldier's Testimony, and that one was written in 1920, right? Sparkling, yes, you got it. Now, whereas the first book dealt with the Land of Phantoms and the second with the Elsewhere World, this third book concerned both of those realms. The third one is The Magician's Manuscript. Takes place after World War II? (laughs) My dear, you almost sound like you've read these books. So, this guy, this magician. Maximilian Averick. Tell me about him. By the end of the 20th century, Maximilian Averick was arguably the world's preeminent illusionist and escapologist. As if that wasn't enough, on the side, he conducted investigations into what he would have called the fraudulently supernatural. He was a debunker? Precisely. He became the scourge of the spiritualist movement in America. Max would infiltrate seances and the like, typically in disguise. He'd bring with him a lesser-known journalist and an undercover police officer. This master of stage magic would look on as the medium or whoever went about their conjuring, and then, when he'd figured out the trick, he would openly expose the charlatans. Why the reporter and cop? 
to ensure that these villainous cheats were held up to public reproach and judicial penalty to quote his book directly. Max made it his life's work to put all these con men out of business, but in so doing, he put himself out of business as well. How so? Max was working in a time when there wasn't as much appreciation for stagecraft and ledger domain. The people who would pack theaters to see him perform wanted, needed, to believe that there could be some form of actual magic at play. Not knowing for sure was part of the appeal, you see. But offstage, he continually proved that there was no supernatural, at least as far as he then knew. And so Max inadvertently extinguished the sense of wonder in his own audience. Who wants to see the magician who has no magic? When it became clear that his career was beyond recovery, he sold his act to an up-and-comer and quietly retired. Oh, I see. It would be years later, as an old man, that he would be called upon by a one Mary Claire McClure, a former war correspondent, now feature reporter, who had discovered Max in some old articles she dug up in her newspaper's archive. This was the very man Mary Claire needed for a story that she was working on. What story? Her editor had assigned Mary Claire to investigate a haunting so severe it reputedly required government intervention. Huh? The reporter wanted the magician's help to debunk what was alleged to be the most paranormally active house in the country, a house so menacing and dangerous that actual military action had been carried out against it. I speak, of course, of the legendary Strangle Deep Manor. Oh, that's come up before. A couple of times now. That was one of Pendergast's properties, right? Strangle Deep being an anagram for E.L. Pendergast. That was also the place the Weavers investigated. Yes, and as you have already guessed, Max and Mary Claire discovered the haunting to be a total fabrication. Pendergast had faked some spooks and specters to keep people away. Indeed. So that government action you mentioned? That was actually the Cabal, huh? They'd found Pendergast and attacked him? He narrowly escaped their capture, but they did get their hands on the orb, which they promptly used to invade the other world. They sent a sizable military force through to subdue the natives and occupy the territory. Ah, uh, yes. I believe we've touched on that. Oh, I'm sure much of this has had previous mentions, but now we can get a little more granular. Okay. Max and Mary Claire go to the old house for spirits, but find a scientist instead. Then what? Pendergast persuaded the reporter to go with him to become his third chronicler. The magician reluctantly tagged along as well. I thought Max was the one who wrote the story. Well, we'll get to all that. Now, by the time Max and Mary Claire crossed paths with Pendergast, he had already prepared for a mission to reclaim the orb from the Cabal, from where it was being held in a secret underground facility. Ah, the Bunker of Babel, you said it was called. By Max, yes, that was his pet name for it. And that's where Pendergast once worked? Back when he was still a member of the secret society. This is also where Hardesty was stationed after being caught by the Allies at the end of the war. And where he built the PX-39. The wormhole tracker that Dr. Zhao rediscovered by accident a couple of years ago. About which he called Circle City Supernatural, sparking your curiosity and eventually this entire podcast. Was it the PX-39 that led the Cabal to Strangle Deep Manor? Is that how they found Pendergast? Yes, he'd activated the orb while living there, and they tracked the gravitational event of the wormhole. So why did he open the portal? He was getting on an age and wished to die on the other world, but his time had not yet come. Realizing this, he closed the doorway between worlds without stepping through. So the Cabal shows up in force, but while he managed to slip away, they still claimed the orb, taking it to the Bunker of Babel. You said that when Max and Mary Claire found him, Pendergast had already mounted a plan to get it back. How had he planned to accomplish this on his own? This was after he'd sent away what remained of his household, right? 
It's true that his resources were few in this time, but those that remained to him were substantial. Mind you, he still had the midnight lightning at his disposal. Ah, the train with the tank rollers and the submarine hull. Plus, the bard was still with him at this time. So, Pendergast had a ride and a bodyguard. That's a good start, I guess. A good start indeed, but to pull it off, he needed a secret ingredient. What was that? It was a who, the deathless Charlie Winston. And there's another hallmark of each season, a mention of the folkloric gravedigger who cheated death in Old West times and walks the earth to this day. And if you ever need to infiltrate and fight your way through what is probably the most highly secure facility on the planet, you're going to need an immortal outlaw. (laughs) Undoubtedly. So to skip ahead, Pendergast and Winston, along with Max and Mary Claire, eventually found the orb in the bottommost chamber of the Bunker of Babel. Seems like a good place to keep it. But the chamber wasn't originally designed to protect the orb. It was designed to protect Clarence Grindle. Well, his physical form, anyway. That's where they kept his still-living but spiritless body while he was away on his mission to locate the orb in the ancient past. His adopted mother... That would be Anne Janet Grindle, right? Who is now the director of the facility? Right. After the Cabal sent the invading force through the portal, she ordered the orb placed in her son's room. She wanted it to be the first thing he saw upon waking. So that Grindle would know that he'd been successful. Grindle had long known that the Cabal was only using him for his abilities. But Anne Janet truly loved him as a son. So, as he confessed to us in Season 1, it was really for her that he undertook the mission. Okay. Hang on, I'm getting fuzzy on the timeline here. So, you've said previously that Grindel made this journey just after World War II. So, at the time that this third book is taking place? Yes, and that's about to become very important, so stick with me. Grindel's mission, as you'll recall, was to find the orb in the distant past and hide it with the intention of unearthing the artifact in his own time upon returning to his own body. So from ancient Egypt, he catapulted his consciousness back the way he'd come. However, something happened, and he failed to reach his point of origin. You described Grindel's spirit as crash-landing in a young boy who was living in Eastern Europe in what was the late 1800s. Yes, he accidentally usurped some poor kid, discovering that his powers were now greatly limited again, just as they had been when Grindel was himself a child. It's probably worth reminding the listeners that this was before Grindel knew that simply killing his host body would eject his spirit. Those were the early days of usurping, and Grindel did not know what would become of his spirit if his host died. He feared being flung off into the infinite unknown. So his plan was to wait until the boy grew into manhood. Then he could develop his full power again and make another attempt to jump through time. In the body of the child, he then spent years just wandering aimlessly, thinking it purely random that he'd ended up when and where he did. But then he had a revelation. He realized that his coming here was fated. Grindel knew well the annals of the Cabal. One of his earliest assignments was to comb through their extensive records, using his unique mental powers to find the true history of the Earth true history? The Cabal had been collecting hidden and forbidden knowledge for ages, pieces of a puzzle, but it was only Clarence Grindle who could fit them together and thus reveal the picture. Say what? To know history is to know the future, and to control one is to control the other. You and I are now very familiar with this truth. Yes, yes we are. However, it was a false history that Grindle uncovered. One that spoke of extraterrestrials coming here in ancient times to impart wisdom and technology to mankind. This they did with a promise of return in what would be a new age of enlightenment. 
Oh, so that's why the Cabal... We'll get to that. Anyway, like I was saying, Grindel, who was stranded in the wrong time and place, knew the Cabal's archives well. So he was aware of a special expedition that had been arranged back in 1899. He knew they had handpicked several individuals known for their unique experiences with the otherworldly, and tasked them with venturing into the last blank spot on the map. The Land of Phantoms. A mysterious realm that is said to be the home of vile creatures, but also a single man who was in possession of an ancient wisdom. An ancient wisdom that the Cabal wanted. The expedition was sent to recover it on behalf of the Cabal. Both Pendergast and Winston were part of this mission. That's how they first met. And how they first met Clarence Grindle. The traveler of space and time realized that he had not come here accidentally. His arrival was fated. He was the man this expedition was sent to find. So the ancient wisdom the Cabal was after? That was the location of the orb? But this was before the Cabal was even looking for it, right? Right. feel like we're rehashing the first book when we're supposed to be focusing on the third. We are, we are, but it's wholly necessary, I promise. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. Okay, but let's try to hurry past stuff we already know. So, while in the stolen body of a child, Grindel makes a pilgrimage to the land of phantoms, subjugating the monsters that lived there, and once he's king of the Shadow Realm, he waits for the expedition to show up. And when they did, he imparted his knowledge of the orb to Pendergast, intending the great scientist to claim it on his behalf, and to deliver it to the Cabal, to his mother. But as we know, Pendergast would go on to claim it for himself. But before the expedition departed from the Land of Phantoms, Winston killed Grindel's host body, the little boy. This is very important to the story we're discussing now. You see, Grindel didn't go flinging off into infinity as he'd feared. No, his spirit was sent hurtling right back to his own time and space. The Traveler awoke in his own body, in the Bunker of Babel, in 1945. And he did so to find Pendergast and Winston there with him yet again. It had been decades for them, but a mere instant for Grindel. <laughs> I believe that you described it as trippy back in Season 1. That sounds right. But he'd also reawakened to find his mother slain before him, a victim of Charlie Winston. Yes, in order to recapture the orb, Winston had a committed mass murder that day, which included Anne Janet. Grindel had gone off to save all that he loved, but upon returning, found his world destroyed. And you really believe Grindel is willing to shelve his plan of revenge for Winston to help us fight the Cabal? I think it's at least possible, yes. But you know we can't trust him, right? Perhaps we should stick to the subject at hand for now and have that discussion another time. Stop being so diplomatic when I'm trying to argue. <laughs> You're right, though. Let's stay focused. So, Pendergast had the orb back. Then he, Winston, Mary Claire, and Max all go to the Elsewhere world. Then what? They found the native inhabitants at war with that army that I mentioned a bit ago, the one sent by the Cabal. Because ruling one planet is just not enough for these people. They met up with Jonas Gentry. Remember him, the uh, second chronicler who'd remained behind when Pendergast had journeyed there the first time? The man who sent May and the other strangers to warn us of a coming catastrophe. Yeah, of course. Well, altogether again, they assisted the natives in battling the Cabal's army, which they defeated. But their victory did not come without cost. Mary Claire McClure was killed. She'd thrown herself in front of a bullet meant for Pendergast. Oh no, that's terrible! But that's why Max is the chronicler, huh? He wrote the story on behalf of Mary Claire, yes. Well, that's kind of a bummer ending. Mm, that's only about half the book. Really? What's the other half? Do you remember discussing the Nephilim last season? Those giant angel-human hybrids? 
How could I forget? They traveled to the other world in ancient times and got stuck there. You said they were marooned on the elsewhere world when the orb was lost here on Earth during the fall of Atlantis. Ugh. What's wrong? I know we're in our third season, but I still feel ridiculous saying some of this stuff out loud. <laughs> I just just remember that it wasn't really Atlantis. We're talking about the first great human civilization that inspired the myth of Atlantis, the civilization that the Nephilim helped create with their superior intelligence. You know, one of my callers mentioned Atlantis on the show last night. Oh? We were talking about the Bermuda Triangle. They think that's where it sank. That's a common theory. Another is that it went under when everything else on the planet did during the Great Deluge. Deluge? Oh, uh, Flood, Noah, Ark, 2 by 2 all that. Ah, of course. Now, after the fall of this civilization, the orb went unused for ages. When it became clear to those Nephilim stranded on the elsewhere world that the portal may never reopen, they determined to find another way home. And how are these things still alive after all that time? Are they immortal or what? Being unnatural creatures, they do have a prolonged lifespan. Also, as I mentioned last season, the conditions of that other world are conducive to increased longevity. That's how Jonas Gentry is still alive over there. But you're right to doubt it. Even with all that, the original generation of the Nephilim should have died out long ago. But they got tricky and sidestepped their own mortality. The giants had developed preservation technology that they'd used to leapfrog through the ages. Some would sleep while others toiled away over their homeward project. Then they would switch places. It was actually this technology that was the key to their return to Earth, which we'll get to here in a minute. So, after the good guys oust the invading army, they learned that the Cabal had actually sent a second force through the portal as well, a small contingent with a secret mission. Their objective was to establish communication with the giants who had been previously defeated and exiled to an archipelago off the mainland. So Pendergast and the others chased this second force to the island chain, pursuing them even into the Nephilim stronghold. Stronghold? On the centralmost island was a towering citadel, the seat of power for the giants. At least, that was the guise they had given it. The entire structure was in actuality a protective shell for a pair of spacecraft they had been constructing for ages. And our heroes had inadvertently boarded one when both then launched. Uh-oh. Pendergast was able to take control of the vessel, however. He managed to bring it back down before it reached orbit and crashed it into an ocean. How did he do that? Nephilim technology is far superior to ours, obviously. The ship's controls had a cognitive interface. Last season, I mentioned them developing forms of telepathy, remember that? Well, the computer system could be accessed mentally, and even though he was only human, Pendergast was able to get in. He hijacked a spaceship with his big old brain? <laughs> Pretty much. So he stopped one of two ships from leaving the planet, but the other got away and is on its way here, right now, the one we've spoken of before, what the Cabal has codenamed the Argosy, and this spacecraft will land here in Circle City in 2060? Correct. And why here? I gave up my belief in coincidence a while back. I do have a theory about that. I believe that while Pendergast was connected to the ship, it mentally read him just as he read it, that the link flowed both ways. So the ship learned of Circle City from Pendergast's memory, since this was his hometown? There must have been some kind of network between the two spacecraft to keep them in communication during the long journey. I believe this information was transmitted from the ship Pendergast had commandeered to the other before they were separated. But wouldn't the giants... That's the thing, though. Both vessels were operating autonomously as the Nephilim were in suspended animation. 
their preservation technology, what they'd used to sustain their species through the ages on the other world, was key to them getting back to Earth. The only way for them to survive the flight through the cosmos was to be in stasis the entire time. Or as you once put it, the Argosy is flying itself because everyone aboard is asleep. So what happened to Pendergast and company once he'd crashed the other ship? You said he'd brought it down into an ocean on the Elsewhere world. And it was sinking now. That, plus one of the giants had awakened from stasis in the crash, so the gang was in trouble. With no other choice, they used the orb and crossed over to Earth. Wow, that's a handy escape. It would have been, except the spacecraft had nearly reached orbit before Pendergast got control and brought it back to the surface, which meant they were far from their point of takeoff. Remember, where the orb is opened on one world corresponds directly to where it will open on the other. Right, right. So when they passed through the portal, they were where? Our heroes found themselves in the land of phantoms. Because, of course. And there Pendergast found Grendel awaiting him once again, just as he had a half century earlier. I thought Grendel was back at the bunker of Babel. He was, fully awake now and hell-bent on revenge. When the PX-39 showed activity in the Transylvanian backcountry, Grendel knew fate was at work once again. Well, fate or his own will. That monologue he was reading yesterday from the book, that's from his final confrontation with Pendergast. Right. <sighs> okay, we're running long here. Let's see if we can finish up the book. Long story short, got it. Uh, let's see. Um, Grindel shoots Pendergast, and then Winston shoots Grindel. Okay, maybe not that fast. Ejected from his own, now very dead body, the Traveler of Space and Time became purely a spirit with no earthly vessel to which he could return. Since he was an aberration, his soul was not bound to the typical rules of humans, and he became... The man who made himself a demon. Grindel said yesterday that his painting was his only connection left to the physical realm. Is that why he wants it so badly? Because I thought it was part of his revenge plan for Charlie Winston. I believe both are true. It was Winston who took the painting with him when they departed from the Land of Phantoms for the final time. But it eventually became separated from the outlaw and worked its way here to Circle City. So Grindel died of his wound. His body, anyway. What about Pendergast? The great scientist was also dying. Before he went, however, he opened the portal once more for them to cross over. He died and was buried on the elsewhere world, just as he wanted. Before he was gone, though, he asked Winston to take the bard back to Earth, back to Adelaide, as we discussed last season. And Max, he charged with finishing the story begun by Mary Claire. So is that the end of the story? Oh, not at all, but those are the most relevant points. We can start moving on now if you think the listeners are falling asleep. I think they're still with us. Okay, good. So, in addition to writing the third one, Max was also entrusted with the first two manuscripts, which Pendergast had hidden behind the bard's breastplate. Where Adelaide had stashed her diary. Yeah, that's actually how I knew to look for it there. So, Max is back on Earth, and with all three books. And now an enemy of the Cabal, the magician had to do what magicians do best. Disappear. But before he did, Max initiated... The handoff policy so that the manuscripts would circulate in secret and apart from one another to keep them beyond the reach of the Cabal. Huh. What is it? The trilogy hadn't been united since Max. Not until they ended up with you. You've said before that you believe yourself to have been the final book bearer. Yes, that's right. But you weren't, Joseph. Uh, come again? By publishing them, you made countless other book bearers. All those who have read these stories, which has been a lot more here recently, have become essentially book bearers. The story will continue on with all of them just as it did with you and I. 
Heck, anyone who listens to this podcast is now a part of it. Oh, I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> Lindsay, you always manage to find the things that I've never considered before. And I absolutely love that about you. Oh, well, a girl does what she can. Now that we've discussed the events of the third book, I need to tell you how I found the actual manuscript, when the baton was passed to me, as it were. Joseph stood and stretched, then went over to the AV cart, to that older model camcorder he'd brought up from the vault and cabled into the TV. I noted that he hesitated before pressing play, but then he did and stepped back. The screen glowed blue, then twitched and came alive with some shaky footage of what was a dining room. Well, what used to be a dining room anyway. It had been modified into a work area, a large portion of the back wall having been dedicated to an intricate timeline. It was one I'd seen before, one that I could see right now standing next to the AV cart. It was the same smattering of photos, notes, and green thread that had been constructed on the chalkboard, or reconstructed as I now saw. The camera panned across all of this, then down to the table. Its surface was covered in papers and stacks of research material. Standing out among the mess were the first and second manuscripts. I had a question, but stopped short, hearing what I then did from the TV. Brian, Joseph's here. He's late. Maybe he had a date. Not likely. Hey, hey, come on in. Hey, thanks, Caitlin. Good to see you. Mags, Maddie, how's my favorite little Hellions? Who's a good doggy? Who's a good doggy? You want some coffee? Oh, please and thank you. I'll bring you a cup. Brian's in the dining room. Oh, great. Brian, how are you? The camera swung around and I saw my partner from several years ago. I would have thought I was looking further back in time than I actually was, however. Joseph appeared youthful. You could tell this was before his life was turned inside out. It was actually disturbing to watch him in the video, knowing as I did that disaster was waiting for him right around the corner. You're filming. It's a quick and easy way to make a backup copy of our progress. You know, in case this thing mysteriously vanishes one of these days. Paranoid. I like it. <laughs> okay, boys, here's the coffee. Oh, Brian, don't film me. I look terrible. What? You look gorgeous. You always look gorgeous. <laughs> Not in front of company, Brian. I'm used to you guys being gross. Don't worry, Joseph. Someday you'll find someone to be gross with, too. I mean, yeah, man. There's someone out there for everyone. Eh, I'm married to my work. So, where'd we leave off last time? Frederick Hardesty. Right. That butthole. There, the tape abruptly ended. Surprising me. Was that it? Why did we watch- I thought you'd like to see and hear the Polydors. We've talked about them so much on this podcast, I just figured- Oh, yeah. That was a good idea. It wasn't long after this that they were killed by the non- Well, you know. I haven't watched this tape in a very long time. They seemed like really good people. I wish I could've... Wait, you, you were the one who found their bodies. So all this stuff you have on the chalkboard was there? At the crime scene? I brought it all back here and locked it in the vault before returning to call the police. I'm pretty sure that's a felony, Joseph. I couldn't just leave it there. All our work would end up rotting away in an evidence locker somewhere. I couldn't find the final manuscript without it. Or so I thought. What do you mean? Joseph came over to my chair and knelt down in front of me, taking up the copy of the third book I'd set aside earlier. 
He turned it over in his hands. I spent years searching for it. As I did, I went ahead and published the two manuscripts I already had. I put them out as fiction and under my own name, as you know. And as you also know, they flopped. But I was not discouraged. I was so sure that if I could find this third manuscript, it would tie the others together and everyone would realize the significance of them all. But... But that didn't happen. So you came forward, confessing that they were actually true accounts, and... And there followed the scandal that ruined the Circle City Collector, yes. Before all that, though, when I first found this book, I was overjoyed. But I was much too thrilled with the discovery to appreciate just how I had actually made it. What do you mean? Was it not your research? Your tireless searching? I thought so. For a time. I would later learn otherwise. I was under careful observation. By the Cabal? Well, yes, but there were others who had been watching me for far longer. They eventually put this book in my path, left it for me to find. I did so in the attic of an abandoned house. The book stood upright in an old box whose lid had been propped open. It was obviously intended for me. It was just there, waiting. Who left it for you? Another book bearer? Yes, but they were more than that. They were a group, but I'm not even sure how many there were. I never actually met them. They were a secret society, born of a secret society. The members of this group had all once belonged to a global oligarchy, but had defected. Now they functioned as a counter-cabal, fighting against their former masters from the shadows. I would eventually come to know them as the Beowulves. That's quite a name. So-called because they were on the hunt for Grindel. Ah, of course. Grindel sounds like Grendel from Beowulf. Very cute. Oh. Hang on. These were the same defectors who stole the Dreamcatcher device. The ones who sent you one of its stories from the future, right? Same group, yes. Actually, I would later learn that my publishing that story was a test. To see if they could trust me to expose the truth, even if it came at a great personal cost. Yeah, I passed their test. So, having trusted you with one story, they did so with another, making sure you got a hold of the third manuscript. That's right. How can you be sure of any of this, though? You said you'd never actually met them. I didn't get the chance. They were killed before I could. Oh. By the Cabal? By Grindel. He discovered that they were hunting for him, so he, well, he hunted them back. Why haven't you told me any of this before? I did not want it on the podcast. Not yet. Why? You said that they were all dead. What's it matter? There is someone left alive who was connected to them. I was trying to keep her out of the spotlight. She's the source of all my knowledge about the Beowulves. She told me as much as she knew, and I pieced together the rest. Which was? I think the Beowulves figured out what Hardesty eventually did. That Grindel's time traveling had split reality, creating two unstable timelines. The Beowulves knew they had to stop him before he made another jump. But they were less successful than we were, it sounds like. What was their plan? Something I failed to mention earlier when still discussing the book was that when the Cabal first got a hold of the orb, they sent scouts through the portal to reconnoiter, as all military forces do before an invasion. Well, during this reconnaissance, the advanced teams recovered some of the Nephilim technology. The Cabal managed to get this craft back through the wormhole to the Bunker of Babel. There, they sought to reverse engineer as much of it as possible. But through the craft, the Cabal gained access to the computer banks. This included all the data about the giant's preservation technology. Some of those who would eventually defect and become the Beowulves worked on these projects. Okay, so what'd that have to do with their plan for Grendel? The Beowulves had learned enough from their time with the Nephilim technology to then build their own stasis pod, what they called the sarcophagus. They called it the... 
Because of the time Grendel spent in ancient Egypt as Kafinatep? Because of the sarcophagus he was buried in there and which is now in Circle City Cemetery? <sighs> These people love their nicknames, huh? They were a bunch of science nerds. What do you expect? So what were they going to... Oh, oh, wait. I get it. If you kill Grendel's host body, he's expelled and just goes looking for another. But if you were to get his vessel into this preservation capsule... You could put him into suspended animation, yes. Trapping the spirit in the body and the body in the pod. He would never die and therefore never get loose again. Dang, that's a good idea. So what happened? Why didn't it work? And who is this mystery woman who told you all of this? When the Beowulfs tracked Grendel to Circle City, they needed a local to help them set up shop here. Someone who could get them things. A fixer, as they're called. Her name is Callista. What did they want her to get? Among other things, a test subject for their capsule. She brought them a freshly dead body. That of a child who'd been terminally ill. Oh. Callista told me that they designed the capsule to look like a casket. Even set it up in the undercroft of the mausoleum down at Circle City Cemetery. They paid off the owner for private use of the space. Wow. Remember how I said Grindel's painting eventually worked its way here to Circle City? Well, it ended up in a little curio shop. The place was run by a woman named Bailey Burke. Remember that name. We're going to swing back around to her in a bit. Her shop is where the Beowulfs found the painting. They used it as bait? Like Keith wanted to back in season one? Where do you think he got the idea? What? The Beowulfs posed as art dealers and offered to sell it to Grindel. But he's not an idiot and, sensing a trap, anonymously hired a local PI to make the purchase on his behalf. Keith? The Beowulfs snared him and almost sealed Sorrels in the capsule forever. Fortunately for him, they realized their mistake and set him free. Actually, the Beowulfs, now aware that Sorrels could be trusted, passed the painting on to him just as they had those documents to me. But like the Dreamcatcher story and the third manuscript, the painting eventually ended up in your vault. That is, until little old me came along with my podcast to announce to the world that you had what Grindel was after. What he was willing to kill for, yes. After their failed attempt to trap Grindel, he was on to the Beowulfs and sought them out. Callista was there when Grindel attacked, and was the only one to escape with her life. She more or less took control of their resources afterward. Including the sarcophagus? As far as I know, it's still down in the belly of that mausoleum. Why? What are you thinking? What do you think I'm thinking? Grindel is out again. The Jinjar is destroyed. This pod could be the answer. Not if Grindel is going to help us against the Cabal. Do you really think he will? We can't trust him, Joseph. Why don't you see that? Here I paused the recording so that we could have that private discussion we'd set aside earlier. I won't call what followed a fight, just a disagreement between partners. With no resolution in sight, we once again tabled that debate and shifted back to the topic at hand. That's right, we're still not done. I know that even by our standards, this is a lot. But it's like Joseph said earlier, this is the last time we'll ever do this. The listeners have to realize that this is not simply a shared universe of stories. It's a single story that's been snowballing since the start. And by the time it got to us, the thing was gargantuan. I get it, babe. I'm just saying, Sylvia's probably going to have to cut this down. No, no, it all stays in. It's all vital. Let the episode be two hours long, or break it into two episodes, I don't care. But please, Sylvia, don't edit anything out. (sighs) I make no promises, Joseph. We're building to a final revelation here, and all this information, it's necessary to it. Okay, okay. So, where do we go from here, story-wise? We have to rewind a bit and pick up with a thread of the story that ran parallel to that of the Beowulfs. 
We'll be going back over some things we've discussed in previous seasons, but it's needed for the clearest picture of the events. Joseph returned to the chalkboard, to the haphazard timeline. He pointed, rather aggressively, to an old black and white photo of a little spectacled man, Frederick Hardesty. At the same time that the counter cabal was forming, Hardesty was also slipping off the yoke of the secret society. What's the time period here? We'll pick up in the mid-1950s, so about a decade after the events of the third book. Got it. A genius and inventor, he began private, secret projects that were for himself alone, devices he would not disclose to the Cabal. He would come here to Circle City to conduct his experiments with them. Oh yeah, like the lantern, the thing that lets you see into the spirit realm that we used against Grindle. You said there was another machine of his too. What was it? You mentioned it in season one. The music box. Right, right. What did that one do again? It emitted a particle field that was meant to stimulate brain matter and cause... An artificial acceleration of the intellect. I remember now. He'd made it to increase his own cognition, right? To be a smart or smarter than Pendergast, even though he was dead now. Uh, but you also said that it didn't work as intended. That it only had an effect on dead brains. Reanimating them like... The machine made zombies. That's how you described it. Remember that as we quickly run through Hardesty's life. Joseph turned to his yarn board and used his finger to trace the green thread of Hardesty's tangled portion of the timeline. In an experiment gone very wrong, Hardesty loses the music box to a local kid named Oliver Dines. The device vanishes and Hardesty does likewise, pulled out of the situation by the Cabal, who was keeping tabs on him. The next time Hardesty surfaces is once again here in Circle City in the 1970s. He's returned to conduct experiments with his newest device. The Lantern. Right, but use of the machine causes some temporary insanity. Prolonged looks into the spirit realm proved to be overwhelming. So after a public freakout, he was briefly remanded to the Asylum for Ascendant Alleviation. Where the true relievers found his medical file ages later. Precisely. Where were his handlers? You said the Cabal was shadowing him. They just let Hardesty get locked up. He'd managed to slip away from them for the moment but they did eventually find him. Hardesty was removed and all, almost all, of his files were redacted. But it was while he was briefly in the asylum that he had his epiphany about automatonics. Pendergast's science of implanting brains into robotic bodies, and which he was to now put into effect. So after the asylum, that's when he went to Argentina, right? To have his brain surgically removed and put into that little machine we saw yesterday? I'm surprised Hardesty was able to get away from the cabal yet again. Seems like they would have kept a tighter leash on him after all this running off of his. This would prove to be his very last chance to escape them. And it worked. He came back to Circle City with his body and had it buried here, proving to the Cabal that he was dead. But he was only able to pull this off with the help of a nurse who came back with him from South America. Valentina Vallejo was her name. You said that at some point, Hardesty angered her and she, Valentina, walled up his little brain box in their house before returning to Argentina. He was behind that wall for years as the house slowly fell into ruin. He'd sing to himself, trying to keep from going insane. Neighbors would sometimes hear him. They thought the place was haunted, but then, finally, a twist of fate. He was discovered and pulled from the wall. You've never told me how you learned any of this. A local drug runner by the name of Tyler contacted me a few years ago and told me. How did he know about Hardesty? Tyler was busted trying to sell to an undercover officer, but had escaped police custody. He hid out in an abandoned house. While there, he heard Hardesty in the wall. He panicked and ran out of the place. 
but in so doing dropped a wad of cash that belonged to his accomplice, a drug dealer named Montgomery Redding, who later went back for it. Monty didn't scare so easy, so when he heard the singing, he investigated. He cut into the wall and found Hardesty, who convinced this kid to help him. Help him with what? Mm, escape the house, for starters. But then the pair of them began a search for the long-lost music box. Along the way, however, they got distracted as yet another of Hardesty's inventions had resurfaced. Literally. Remember that rash of grave robberies we talked about in season one? The ghoul that was digging up bodies and eating them? Yeah, you said Hardesty's grave was the last to be violated. He'd had the lantern buried with his brainless body, so this is when the device was found by Ryan Tolliver, a former groundskeeper at the cemetery. Whom Hardesty and Monty then tracked down to reclaim the lantern. But things got hairy. In a convoluted series of events, Monty somehow ended up getting arrested, and Ryan ended up as Hardesty's new helper. And at some point, both Hardesty and Ryan joined up with Keith and Carolyn at the Unclosing Eye Detective Agency. I don't recognize some of these stories you're referencing. They're not in the anthology you put out. In volume two, perhaps. Yeah, where is that, by the way? Well, I've been a little busy with a certain podcast, haven't I? Uh, excuses, excuses. But here's the thing. Monty never gave up searching for the music box, even after he and Hardesty were parted. You got all this from that Tyler kid? Who wasn't there for it? Monty reconnected with his old friend, you know, to get back into the business. In their time together, Hardesty had told Monty everything, and so Monty told Tyler everything. And then Tyler told you everything. That's quite a game of telephone, Joseph. Hopefully you have all the details right. So, what brought Tyler to you? I assume Monty swore him to secrecy about all this. You're right. Tyler only came to me after Monty was murdered. Well, drug dealing is a dangerous business. I believe it was the cabal. Tyler said that while Monty had returned to his old life, he hadn't given up on seeing Hardesty again and that he was still searching for him as well as the music box. It was Monty's hope to find both and reunite them at some point. Sounds like Hardesty made quite the impression on this kid. Because of the stories that I had published, the Cabal knew of the music box and how it would help them in their plans. So, in addition to Monty, sleeper cell operatives here in Circle City were looking for it. So you think Monty got to the music box first? Then the Cabal killed him and took it? Yes. You said they needed it for their plans. They took it to the water tower. Now, before we get into all that, I have something else to play for you. Joseph took his phone in hand and opened the web browser, but his brow narrowed as he spoke. Remember Bailey Burke, the shopkeeper? That you mentioned in passing like an hour ago? Sorta. She has a story that... that's... Where is it? What? What's wrong? Your website is down. The Endless Elsewhere site? No, no, your site for Circle City Supernatural. I'm getting the 404 error message. What do you need it for? After you guys digitized the archive, you made a bunch of the calls available online. I was going to play you one from the Kadera days. That's weird. Let's head over to the station. I could have easily just phoned Sylvia about the issue, but I needed to stretch my legs. Joseph and I had been talking for quite some time, but I don't need to tell you that, listener. So I thought a change of venue would be good, but it wasn't. It wasn't good at all. My heart sank as we pulled up to the station. Workmen were removing the call letters from the building. The neon green WCCX would never glow again. Leaning against one of the crew's ladders, waiting to be hung up, was a simple wooden placard. Painted upon it in black and white were the new call letters WNTS, and below that, flanked by a couple of generic stars, was our frequency, 1590 AM. It was a cheap replacement, just good enough to do the job. After all, our new owners didn't care about this station or what it broadcast, so long as it wasn't my show. Joseph parked the truck and we stepped out. 
The pair of us just stood there gazing in disbelief. It was really happening now. The beginning of the end. Do good. Fight evil. Repeat. I'm Lindsay Mallon, and this is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast. Podcast.